According to Reporters Without Borders, if the killing of 57 people in a convoy on their way to file candidacy documents for an upcoming election in the Philippines on Monday included 20 journalists, as reported, it was the largest single massacre of journalists ever. Now, the Associated Press release did note that Philippine elections are particularly violent in the South because of the presence of armed groups, including Muslim rebel fighters uh, fighting for self-rule and political warlords who maintain private armies. Uh, it also noted that the last election in 2007 uh, was considered peaceful, even though 130 people were killed. And they gave a tally that uh, since the 70s, the long Muslim insurgency has killed 120,000 people. So what happened in the Philippines, in the south of the Philippines, was not particularly surprising for them. But if that were not the case, and if 20 journalists had been killed here, I imagine some would have suggested that they were being punished by God for their liberal bias. So how do you respond when tragedy strikes? What goes through your head? What do you try to read into world events? Do you find yourself wondering where God is in all this? Is he causing it? Is he allowing it? Is he ignoring it? If you find yourself wondering why something bad has happened, if you find yourself saying, God must have had a reason, it's easy to begin thinking that God must be punishing somebody. Did that even cross your mind when the tornadoes went through the area in August? Do you call such events in nature an act of God? And if you do, do you consider them to be acts of judgment? And if you do, was it wrong of us to send $1,000 to the Williamsville Christian Church to help them rebuild? Was God bringing judgment on them? How do you respond to this 2003 report from the uh, Findlay Courier in Ohio. A guest evangelist at First Baptist Church in Forest, Ohio, was preaching about penance and asking for a sign on Tuesday night when the church's steeple was hit by lightning, setting the church on fire and blowing out the sound system. It was awesome. Just awesome, said church member Ronnie Cheney, 40, of Rural Forest who was in the church at uh, 206 North Martin Street when the lightning struck. You could hear the storm building outside, and he, the evangelist, just kept asking God what else he needed to say, Cheney said. He was asking for a sign, and he got one. At about 7.45 p.m., lightning hit the church's steeple, went through the electrical wiring, and blew out the church's sound system. Cheney said the lightning traveled 
through the microphone and enveloped the preacher. But he was not injured. Afterward, services resumed for about 20 minutes, but then the congregation realized the church was on fire and the building was evacuated. <laughs> How do you respond to things like that? You know, was God answering the evangelist? And if so, what was he saying? Was it a wake-up call for the church? Or was he bringing judgment on an unfaithful church? And if he was, does that explain why, according to insurance company reports, lightning is the number one cause of fires in churches? <laughs> or is it explained because their steeples are usually the highest points in town? I kind of like that one. But in the Middle Ages, the ringing of church bells was thought, I'm really getting good at this Wikipedia stuff. You used to have to subscribe to get you know, illustrations. Now you can just punch a button and there they are. Uh, in the Middle Ages, the ringing of church bells was thought to diffuse lightning. And many medieval bells were engraved with fulgur frango. I guess that's Latin or something. That says, I break up the lightning. That stopped when it was observed that over a 33-year period, there were 386 lightning strikes on church towers, killing 103 bell ringers. When Ben Franklin, I'm not done. When Ben Franklin invented the lightning rod... He was condemned by some for circumventing the will of God. And if that's true, should we disconnect the grounding cables that enable the cross on top of our steeple to act as a lightning rod? I raise all these questions because they're very similar to the ones Jesus asked when confronted by a couple of tragedies in his day. He knew what the people were thinking. And while he did refute the idea that there is a connection between tragedy and the magnitude of a victim's sin, he did make it clear that we should see in such events a call to repentance. Let's take a look at the encounter that led to the questions and see what Jesus had to say about tragedies and sin. And repentance. We're in Luke chapter 13 this morning. Now, on that same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus had been emphasizing the need 
to analyze current events as they related to him and to make peace with him while there was still time. He noted that the people were good at predicting the weather and should have understood the polarization that was taking place over him. While many were rejecting him, it was time for them to make certain they were in a right relationship with him because a time was coming when it would be too late to get right with him. They had to stand before the judge. They would have to pay the penalty for opposing him. There would be consequences, eternal consequences, for rejecting the Savior God had sent to earth. Well, apparently all this talk about consequences of not getting right with God led some to bring up Pilate's slaughter of Galilean worshipers in the temple courtyard. For some reason, Pilate had caused their blood to flow with the blood of the sacrificial animals they had brought to Jerusalem. Now, we don't have any extra-biblical accounts of this event. But we do have numerous records of Pilate's inhumane dealings with the Jews. Josephus tells us that on one Passover, 3,000 Jews were butchered, and the temple courts were filled with corpses. On another occasion, Pilate had legionnaires disguise themselves as worshipers and then execute those who were vocal about his recent dealings with the Jews. Well, this event may have been precipitated by a demand that temple funds be used to build a new aqueduct system in Jerusalem. And Galileans were known for being hot-headed and may have expressed their displeasure with Pilate more openly than others. But whatever the situation, some Galileans were killed and others, no doubt, escaped. The common assumption was that those who had been killed were greater sinners than those who had been spared, and that God only protects those who deserve his protection. Well, Jesus emphatically denied that assumption. Let me make that very clear. Jesus emphatically denied that assumption. He said, no, that is not the case. But then he added something rather confusing. He said, unless his hearers repented, they would all likewise perish. He then made similar statements about an incident where 18 were killed when a tower fell on them. It's been surmised that the tower in Siloam was part of Pilate's aqueduct system located by the pool of Siloam. And that those who were killed were workmen who were being paid with the appropriated temple funds. That's been supported by the fact that they were described in the text as debtors. The word translated culprits really means debtors. Jesus called them debtors. Some suggest they were called that because that was God's money. They'd been paid with. They're being judged because of that. But whatever the case, the assumption was that those who were killed deserved to die. And that those who were spared were less sinful. Jesus, once again, declared that was not the case. But he also added again, unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. What did he mean by that? Some have suggested that Jesus' warning may have had special application for the Jews of his day, that unless they repented and recognized the true nature of the Messianic kingdom and quit looking for excuses to rebel against Rome, they would suffer a fate similar to those who had died. And that did actually come true in 70 A.D. at the destruction of Jerusalem when thousands were killed by the sword or died in the burning rubble of the city. A more general application is simply that all are deserving of a similar fate. That those who perished weren't singled out because they were worse and those spared were better, but that all are sinful enough to deserve such a fate. All are sinners estranged from God, all live in a sinful world, a fallen world, and all deserve to die because of their sin. You know, today we seem to think that God owes us a good life of 80-plus years, free from major illnesses, at least two healthy, well-behaved kids, and at the very minimum, average creature comforts. We don't get it. We want to know why. Why is God picking on me? What did I do to deserve this? You know, if we really understood sin and what we've done to the heart of God by our sin, instead of asking why me, we'd be asking why not me? And when we see tragedies and catastrophes and sorrows and death, we would recognize that they are what we all deserve. Tragedies should make us aware of our sinfulness and the cost of sin. And when we are spared, we should be grateful for God's grace that has spared us. Not because we deserved to be spared, but simply because of his grace. He was giving us something we did not deserve. Now, when Jesus said, unless we repent, we would all likewise perish, he wasn't saying that if we repent, we would have no tragedies in life. He was saying we wouldn't suffer the eternal death and destruction that is pictured in the tragedies of life. Our repentance may not and probably won't prevent similar tragedies from befalling us in this life, but it will in the life to come. And Christ wants us to see the consequences of sin all around us, as well as the pictures of his grace, so that we will be determined to accept His grace and live in such a way that the eternal consequences of sin will be removed. If we would be spared that judgment, which we rightfully deserve, we must repent. We must change the direction of our life. And that repentance must be genuine. 
When the Pharisees came to John the Baptist and said they wanted to repent, he demanded that they show fruit of the repentance. The same is true for us. And he began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And this parable reminds me of an apple tree that we had in our backyard. When I bought the tree, the tag simply said, red apple. Now that should have been a clue to what I was buying, <laughs> but it was a good deal. <laughs> well, I planted it, and it grew into a beautiful tree full of red apples, but they were the size of silver dollars and just about as hard and tasteless. I tried pruning. I tried spraying. Nothing worked. Eventually, I got tired of stepping on the apples while mowing the grass, and Paul cut it down for me. The fig tree in Jesus' parable was similar. It had been planted in a vineyard and cared for as it grew. When it reached maturity, the owner of the vineyard started looking for figs. He was disappointed by no figs for three years in a row and gave up on it. It was just taking up room in the vineyard. So he gave orders for it to be cut down. The vineyard keeper, however, talked the owner into giving it one more year. But even he agreed that if it didn't start producing, it would have to be cut down. The point of the parable seems fairly obvious. If we have been planted in the kingdom of God, we are expected to bear fruit. The Jews thought they were securely planted in God's vineyard. They came from good stock and had benefited from God's provision and protection time and again throughout history. But they had become unfruitful. And they were in danger of being cut down. They've been given one final season of cultivation. The preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles. But if their faith didn't start producing fruit, they would be removed from God's vineyard. If their lives didn't start demonstrating the reality of their repentance, they would be cut down. The sad reality is that as a nation, Israel did not respond positively to the message of John, Jesus, and the apostles. They refused to give up their misguided expectations about the Messiah and turn their back on the only Lamb of God who could actually take away their sin and the eternal consequences of their sin. And as the Apostle Paul made clear in Romans 11, if God did not spare the unproductive natural branches of his olive tree, 
we who have been grafted in better not become so conceited as to believe that he will spare us if we too prove to be unfaithful and unfruitful. Since we are in effect the replacement stock in God's vineyard, it's imperative that we become productive members in the kingdom of God. It's not enough to simply be allowed into the vineyard. We must begin bearing fruit if we expect to remain. That's not to suggest that it's by our works that we retain our standing with God. It's merely an acknowledgement that if our faith and repentance is for real, it will be seen in the fruitfulness of our lives. Christ will make a difference. And His Spirit within us will become evident by the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That fruit will become obvious. Now, if it isn't, we may be in trouble. But God is patient for a time. He does allow others to cultivate and fertilize the trees in his vineyard that are having a hard time producing. But all the cultivating and fertilizing in the world won't bring fruit to a dead tree. And you alone know whether you are dead or alive. If you have truly repented, died to self, and risen with Christ, you are alive. And while you may have a bad season or two, and may need the intervention of your brothers and sisters to keep you going, you will bear fruit in the vineyard of God. God doesn't promise His vineyard will be a bed of roses. But if we will surrender to the Lord of the vineyard and let the tragedies of life keep us mindful of sin and the need for grace, we will be ready when He comes looking for the fruit of our faith.